Hey guys, welcome to another episode of In the Zone. I'm here with Aulino and Pinello. And WrestleMania was Saturday and Sunday. Um, just, I thought this was a fantastic show with no audience. Um, I was telling Pinello, I think this was the best one in the 30s. Um, but let's just get right into it. First match we had was um, Alexa Bliss and Nikki Cross versus the Kabuki Warriors for the smack for the sorry for the tag team championship. Um, what were you guys' thoughts on this match? And uh, did it uh, did it exceed expectations? It was a pretty good opener. I was actually surprised by it. How long it was? Uh, not like fifteen minutes. You wouldn't expect that from a women's tag team match, but. Uh, they all did a good job with it. They made the right call here. I think Oscar needs to go back to being a singles competitor. Kari Sane, maybe Iro Shirai will come up and form a tag team there. But uh, yeah, this is the right call. Hopefully now will be featured every week because it hasn't really been anywhere to be seen on TV. I don't have much to add to that. It was a solid opener. I didn't think they'd actually open with this one. But uh, yeah, Oscar and Kyrie Sane with all their fucking noises with nothing going on in the arena was probably the best part of the match for me. But yeah, solid 15 minutes they got. Nice opener. Good way to start it off. Well, next up we had uh, two guys that really haven't been doing anything. Um, King Corbin and Elias. Um, Did the right guy win here? No. I think this was uh, another match, too, that had no business being on. Uh, it's a shame because you see King Corbin last year retires Kurt Angle. This year, like, him and Elias haven't really been doing anything in the lead-up to WrestleMania. Just been attacking from behind and all that goofy stuff. So this match was a little too long. and It was nine minutes, so it should have just been five, and I think King Corbin should have won. Corbin pushed him off a 20-foot fuck whatever the hell they were on. Landed on cement, and Elias shows up the next night. And he gets the win with the most devastating move, the roll-up. I just this, this could have been done on a Raw. I'm right with you there. This was the one match on the entire show. I felt like they didn't need to have it. It didn't do a whole lot for Corbin. Yeah, it was just there for me. Well, next up for me was probably the biggest disappointment of the whole pay-per-view. Um, you had Shayna Baszler versus Becky Lynch. I thought this was kind of early in the show, but you know, a title match had to happen. Um, I'm really stunned with this. We all said basically Shayna needed to win this, but Becky actually got the win in controversial fashion. Um, what is next for Shayna Baszler? Oh, this was bad. <laughs> like... The way they built her up at the chamber and just running through everyone, you would think this match would be Shayna Baszler going over dominant fashion, makes a statement, starts another rivalry with uh, Becky. Becky comes back and they have like a few matches, but Becky going over here, it's puzzling. It's mind-blowing. <laughs> Doesn't make sense. She has a year reign now. Should have been over like five months ago. Uh, like, I don't know. It's continue the next WrestleMania, is she going to have the title still? Uh, Shayna's probably going to get it eventually, but you just look at everything from like, whenever she got called up and on and she just fucking cleaned house. You look at the Elimination Chamber. Competition wasn't the best, but whatever. We won't talk about that. Um, and you know what? I, I don't even care about the length of the match or how it went. She won by a roll-up again. No one seems to notice that two years in a row. But, uh, yeah, the next few months are going to be a little puzzling, but uh, they have something 
down the line to bring up to something with raw certain return we'll see what goes on there yeah up next um Sami Zayn versus Daniel Bryan for the Intercontinental title I thought this was entertaining but again kind of disappointed uh they didn't really put on that mat wrestling classic that a lot of people expected it was more about character it was more about gaining that heel heat from Sami Zayn he actually retained here I was kind of surprised with this one as well back-to-back uh, champions for me retaining that quite frankly I thought I had no business retaining but w- guys what do you think is next for Daniel Bryan if he doesn't end up winning the Intercontinental title yeah this one it was, it was an okay match like pretty good had its moments those slaps by Daniel Bryan that you can hear around the performance center and that good Canadian kid Sami Zayn getting his big moment retains the title over a former world champ so uh, I was happy to see that but, uh, yeah, with the whole thing now, Drew Gulak, uh, Shinsuke, Cesaro, they're all in this mix. They seem to probably be, if they want to go with an Intercontinental Championship, they all turn on Sami Zayn, have a big match there with the four of them. Daniel Bryan, I don't see involved in that. Maybe uh, with Braun Strowman as a world champ now, the universal champ on that brand, maybe they have, like, Daniel Bryan involved in a Money in the Bank or... Maybe a number one contenders match, but I hope this doesn't put him in that intercontinental title mix. Uh, for Brian, I think he's just going to continue to put people over. He doesn't even—he's in a point in his career now where he doesn't have to have a title, or he doesn't have to have long runs or anything. The stuff he's been doing with Sami Zayn. Sami Zayn had a match with Brian for the IC title at Mania. He was struggling to get on SmackDown over a month ago. That just blows my fucking mind. This match was amazing. I thought it was it, like perfect mix of like New Japan style and comedy. It was just so funny. Uh, this entire group works so well together. I hope it's not over. I hope Cesaro eventually gets the IC title and then Brian can go after him for a little bit. But uh, this is just this is a win all around. So do you see like Cesaro turning on Sami Zayn eventually? Oh no, they're just going to keep passing it around. Shinsuke had it for a bit. Brian had it for a bit. Maybe Brian wins it for a cup of tea, and then Cesaro gets in there. Just, I just love all these guys involved. It's just so good. Well, next up we had was the triple threat ladder match. We all thought it was going to be a you know six man ladder match, like we've seen with you know in the good old days. But instead, I don't know if it's because of the coronavirus or they started backing out. But we had John Morrison, Jimmy Uso, and Kofi Kingston. This match to me was probably the best match. Um, at the performance center that night uh what were your guys thoughts on this one um and who shined the brightest out of the three yeah i agree with you there this was uh an in-ring style like out of the all the in-ring matches there this was probably the best match of that night one uh i think because of miz was uh the one who had to pull out because he was sick or something if you had john morrison take on the new day and the usos him as a heel winning would have made it like okay, maybe he's a baby face in the fans' eyes. So I like that they made it a triple threat. They had Kofi, like the guy who you would want in this type of match, and Jimmy Uso. I think Jimmy Uso shined. Everyone knows Kofi and John Morrison uh, could be that singles main event guys, but Jimmy Uso, being in a tag team, you never really see him in these kind of singles matches. So I thought this was a good performance for him uh, to really shine on the roster. And Maybe uh, if they go with this, I hope they continue with it, have the six men eventually when everyone's all healthy, because I think these three teams are easily the best on SmackDown. 
definitely a unique situation. No complaints here. You could throw any combination of them in and it, it would have been amazing. I'll go with John Morrison shining out because this was his first uh, his first real match since coming back here and everyone knows who he is. But on a stage like WrestleMania, to be with those two in a ladder match, I, I just thought he was amazing. So, yeah, this was also a, another fun one. Yeah, it was a creative finish too. See when he took the title, they all had it. And then Morrison grabs the titles, falls back onto the ladder, uh, sacrifices his body, but he gets the gold. So him and Miz are still champs. <laughs> Up next, we had uh, probably the match I was most looking forward to, Kevin Owens versus Seth Rollins in a singles match to start. And, um, you know, I thought this was pretty fun. And then, of course, Seth DQs himself, and that was when I was kind of disappointed. I was like, this better not end like this. But again... We thought that this feud would kind of go on, but then Kevin Owens, you know, does his basic rock impression where it's like, no, we're not ending it like that. You're getting your ass back in the ring. It's a no DQ match, and they just tore the house down. What were your guys' thoughts here? Kevin Owens actually getting his WrestleMania moment. Now Seth Rollins actually has another loss to WrestleMania. What were your guys' thoughts? And does this mean Kevin Owens potentially gets a WWE title shot down the line? Yeah, I love this match. Uh, and Seth Rollins was cutting the promo. Uh, you hear the trash talk between the bo- two of them with no fans in, so it was kind of funny there, the stuff they were saying to each other. And then uh, Seth Rollins at the end there, when he got stunned by Kevin Owens, they sold it well. You see him in his face like, ah, the Monday Night Messiah. He lost. He's all down now. <laughs> he needs to be uplifted. Maybe Buddy Murphy comes in, but... Uh, this was a pretty fun match to watch. It was better than I thought it would be. I thought it was going to go with the DQ finish at first. thought probably would have been the best idea so they continue it for like another month or two, but I didn't mind Kevin Owens going over. I think in the moment when they first did the DQ, I was actually so pissed off. I turned into like a nine-year-old again. I just started flipping. Saw KO got on the mic. I'm like, oh, okay, it's going to be all right. And then from that moment on, it really picked up. It got so personal, like you said. You can hear them talk to each other, and then KO jumping off the stage was just the icing on the cake. These two at any given arena, it doesn't matter when it is, they're always going to knock it out of the park. This was no different. (laughs) Well, we could talk about that, and then we could talk about this train wreck. Goldberg versus Braun Strowman for the Universal title. Both of the main title matches combined were not even over seven minutes this match was two minutes and ten seconds. What were your guys' thoughts on this? Was this more of like a relieve situation, or was it still kind of like a laughable type moment for you guys? Oh, this was a laughable disaster, train wreck, everything all into one. Uh, Braun Strowman, good guy. Uh, not on social media, I guess, depending on uh, all the indie wrestlers he's bashing, but... Like you would think Goldberg, he's a smaller of the two in this. And all those vignettes, you see him do these Muay Thai punches and workouts and all this crap. And you would think he would actually pull that out in a match to at least extend it a little bit. Maybe one or two of them to show that Goldberg has to fight for his life here against uh, a monster among men. But I don't know why they just went with power slam, spear, 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 power slam. It was done. So it was a waste of two minutes. Could have been at least a five-minute enjoyable match, for, even for Goldberg standards. Uh, it wasn't that. It was just uh, a close. Here, we're going to throw this match in between the main event and uh, the Kevin Owens match. Just uh, make everyone go to sleep and get tired, and we've got a main event coming up. I want to say that I'm happy for Braun 
over the literal fact that he has the universal title, but it was probably the most anticlimactic thing I've ever seen. It was just thrown in there last second. There's not much of a build. There's not really anything to work with. The match itself, honestly, if you're expecting more than jackhammer, spears, and a couple of punches, that's probably on you. So this one exactly how I thought it would go. And then on next, we had the Boneyard match, which is something we've never seen before. And I thought they knocked this one right out of the park. AJ Styles, he's phenomenal. He'll do anything to just put anything over. Um, the Undertaker actually looked fantastic here. Like, this was probably the best Undertaker I've seen since, like, 2012, 2011. Um, it's a shame they didn't bring back the Roland theme. They had Metallica. It was an okay replacement. But um, what were you guys' thoughts on this cinematic experience? Yeah, this was cool. Uh, I remember when uh, the gong was playing and it was like Undertaker's theme. I'm like, oh, they're actually going to go with Undertaker coming out like this with a dead man and all the druids and all that. And it's AJ popping out and laughing like an asshole <laughs> and saying, oh, where is he? Is he here? And then uh, that's when the Metallica song plays and Undertaker comes in and they had the camera zoom in on him and you see it's the American badass Undertaker. That was a cool moment. Uh, nice nostalgic moment and he wrestled like that through the whole match it was more of a brawling style you can actually hear Undertaker cutting promos on AJ and just a back and forth I think they utilized everyone like Carl Anderson, Luke Gallows were in the mix to really just make this more about Undertaker uh, not exposing his weaknesses at his age and AJ can't say enough about him how good he is and they just really had an amazing match match of the night everything you wanted in the main event and a good uh, send off to WrestleMania with AJ's hand hanging out of the thing of dirt. Yeah, this was absolutely exhilarating. If you're going to try to do these kinds of, you want to try to switch it up, you know, this would be the perfect year to do it. So um, I really don't have much to add to that. I'm so happy they added the OC in there. We were in the OC shirt. You got to represent. I thought the thing would die three months later. AJ's, uh, you know what? That is the perfect send off. For AJ Styles, um, when you just look at all the guys that Undertaker's faced over the years, and AJ for like the next five years can really represent this group going forward, then Undertaker's pretty much beat everyone from every era. So that is the perfect send-off, but we'll see if it actually is a send-off. You think AJ comes back as that uh, darker character he had an impact? Or is this like AJ's just going to come back like nothing happened and complain about Undertaker? I don't know. I think either way, AJ Styles deserves he deserves a title shot after this. I think at least. But now we got to go to night two, and uh, night two started it off with the NXT Women's Championship, and I thought this match was absolutely fantastic. But critics will get frustrated. Charlotte Flair actually defeats Rhea Ripley by submission, makes her tap out. What were you guys' thoughts on the end result in this one? It went exactly like how I thought it would. Uh, I know people want to say, okay, Rhea Ripley, we want her to win, but Rhea Ripley's in her early 20s. If they give everything to her now, uh, by the time she's like 27, 28, she's going to dip and leave and go on to bigger and better things. So you don't have to do it right away. Her time will come. This was a really good match for her to showcase that she's a legitimate star in the company. And Charlotte, she wins the NXT Championship and now goes to NXT full-time. That's exactly what they need. 
they're not exactly doing that well in the ratings wise against AEW. So uh, being able to advertise that Charlotte's going to be there every week and have matches, maybe it shifts a little bit. I don't think it will. I think they need a lot more help, but uh, having Charlotte helps their women's division for sure. It was good that they played it safe with Rhea because if they gave her that win, there's really, there's not much higher you can go from there. So she is only 25 years old. NXT champion walking into Mania against Charlotte Flair. I think that's a pretty good start. So um, you look back on Rhea Ripley's career and you see the second she got called up from NXT, all the buzz at Survivor Series and the build that led to this match, you're going to look back and say this is the match that made her a superstar. Was this better than Asuka, you think? Asuka Charlotte? Ooh. I'm going to go with no for now. Well, next up we had was another singles match, kind of like Corbin and Elias, where it's kind of like, is it worthy to be on WrestleMania? Bobby Lashley versus Aleister Black. This actually surprising. This surprised me. I thought this was actually a pretty solid seven minutes. Um, Aleister Black obviously getting the win here. I think he had to win. I know, Alino, you had Lashley winning. But I just don't see Lashley being successful with Lana. And that was basically why he lost. So just anything else really you guys want to talk about there? I think this was way better than the Elias Corbin. Like of matches that got thrown together just out of the blue. I think this actually like I was expecting it to be on the pre-show. Like not on the actual card. But they made it work for what it was. And I like at the ending where Bobby Lashley's going for the Dominator. He's like... Lana, of course, had to say, no, 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 do this. And it costs Lashley. And I think Lashley, his promo after, said maybe he needs new management. And I think this is perfect. This uh, opens the door for either Leo Rush or MVP. And I think we'll finally be seeing Bobby Lashley have some success. And he can get rid of the storyline with Rusev and Lana. Put that in the back, that train wreck, the end of the decade. Finally, brighter future, hopefully. Or he can just dip and go to AEW like everyone else. That uh, was pretty much my only takeaway. That look that Bobby gave Lana right after. And then you kind of knew, okay, it's time to stop fucking around. Stop letting Lana get in the way. Get back to business. Do what makes you the man. And uh, we all know Aleister Black's on pace to do that. But for Bobby Lashley, hasn't done a whole lot since facing Roman Reigns the first couple of months when he came back. So you got to pull the trigger on him. The guy's too good to just be sitting in the back buzzing out. So what are your expectations for Bobby Lashley moving forward? Do you start with a U.S. title? Do you start? Do you just catapult him to face Drew McIntyre? Because we know that they've had their alliances before. Um, what, what do you guys think, Bobby Lashley? Where do you think he should be on the card? Yeah, I think just money in the bank ladder match for now. After that, it's all up in the air. Oh, that's it. Okay, well, uh, <laughs> next up we had was Otis and Dolph Ziggler. In a singles match. Now, the build for me, the promo was hilarious. The end result was fantastic. I just loved every part of this match. Um, Do you guys have any? I mean, I love Dolph Ziggler. I think uh, him getting a singles match here was necessary at this point in his career. But just Otis, you know, the way he acted, especially with no audience there, the, the type of character he has, he needs an audience there. And he still knocked it out of the park. What were your guys' thoughts on this segment? That's amazing. It was a true WrestleMania moment for Otis. Uh, for Dolph, too, he finally got a singles match. And I, I was getting pissed like on the pre-show. I'm like, they showed this graphic. I'm, I remember texting you guys. I'm like, 
don't do them dirty like that. What the hell are they doing? Why are they putting this on the pre-show? And it's like, oh no, this is what's to come on WrestleMania. So they were. This was perfect for what it was. Otis gets his moment. Dolph gets his match, and we get a feud for the next couple months. This that that would have been one of the biggest pops of the night. Honestly, like everything about this story just laid out perfectly. You know, Mandy and Otis, they get together a little bit and then oh, Sonya kind of fucks things up and then enter Dolph in the equation. Little fuckery throughout the match. Mandy comes in, very Trish Stratus, Chris Jericho, Christian back in the day. And then the big grand finale with Otis holding Mandy. I could just picture the fireworks going off and the 90,000 screaming people. They were robbed of that moment. But anyone that saw that match knew that I was a win. Well, next up was just a complete win. Last man standing match. I know a lot of critics said this was too long, but like the animosity, everything was there. Um, a lot of people said that it wasn't vicious enough, but you got to remember, Edge just had two major surgeries on his neck. So I think this was kind of like they played it cautious here. Um, but man, this match for me was unreal. When I saw the promo, I was telling you guys, I was crying. Like I was watching like, just the build and, you know, like the raw emotion on Edge's face. It was just, I felt like a kid again watching the promo. And then, of course, the match to me was just outstanding. You know, Randy Orton keeps saying, you know, go back to go back to your daughters. You know, I'm doing this for you. Um, it was just perfect. But a lot of people, they, they did say it was too long. What were your guys' thoughts on this one? Yeah, I think for his first match with no crowd, I think maybe a few minutes too long, but I think it was fine the way it is. Really good match. Uh, Edge can still go that long. Uh, I don't even think they really cut it that much. Maybe have like a few breaks in between. I don't think so. It seemed like it was all in one shot. Uh, I like how Edge was uh, talking with Orton back and forth, and then Orton would go back, like you said, and said, oh, I'm going to bring you back now. You're going to go home to your daughter. So after I just squash your head through the chair. So every the storytelling in that match was perfect. Uh, they did have their moments where I thought Orton was actually going to win. I'm glad they went with Edge, though. But I still think they're going to probably have a rematch at SummerSlam. Honestly, they could have taken all night. Like his his Edge's future is obviously unpredictable. So just because of the fact that it's WrestleMania, it's Randy Orton, and it's a last man standing match, I'm all in. They could have taken all night. I would have been good. So yeah, another masterpiece there by those two. Now, a lot of people after this match, they talk about, like, what's next for Edge and what's next for Randy Orton. Can we potentially see these two guys going at it for the WWE title if they're not keen on maybe Drew McIntyre selling tickets down the line? Well, I don't think Drew McIntyre is not going to sell tickets, but uh, I def- this can definitely, uh, I can see it continuing with all the shit that Randy Orton's put Edge through over the last little while, and then Edge gets the win. I can't imagine that Randy's yeah, that's going to be okay with Randy. So <laughs> maybe a little bit down the line, these two can keep going at it. And then yeah, maybe they can lead to Drew. We'll see. I could easily see this being feud of the year. Just my opinion. Um, up next we had was for the Raw Tag Titles. This to me was just, this was a disappointment. You have two guys making their, actually all of them are actually making their WrestleMania debuts. Uh, Dawkins, Ford, Garza, Theory. And this was, I know it came after the Edge and Orton match, but this to me was just a flat out, I, I was just disappointed with this. What were you guys' thoughts on this match? Yeah, it was a disappointment. This should have been on the pre-show. It didn't really offer anything other than Bianca Belair's debut. 
Um, other than that, like I didn't see any bright spots. I think they had better matches on Raw, to be honest. And for a WrestleMania match, I thought it should have been a lot better. Uh, yeah, I was just going to say it felt like just a standard Raw tag team match. Obviously, Bianca getting called up is uh, a takeaway here that adds to that women's division. Maybe she's going to take on Becky down the line. Who the hell knows? But they even did it the next night on Raw, and it was even worse. So, yeah, I'm just going to leave that. Um, up next, we have a Fatal 5-Way elimination match. This match was 20 minutes, and this match to me did not disappoint. I thought this was actually pretty solid. The storytelling at the beginning where Tamina's the, you know, the big force, and so everyone had to get up on her to pin her. I thought that was pretty good. Naomi looked really good in this match. So did Lacey Evans. But at the end of the day, the connection, they, Bailey retains here because of Sasha Banks. What were your guys' thoughts on this one? Did, was Bailey retaining the right call here? At the time, I was thinking, okay, maybe Sasha should have won that. And then uh, once Lacey took her out, I thought, okay, Lacey's probably going to win here and it will lead to Bailey Sasha because she didn't help her when she got pinned. But with Bailey retaining, I think this opens the door for that. Like Bailey and Sasha, maybe even at Money in the Bank, or Sasha will win Money in the Bank and cash in on Bailey to lead to more matches. But yeah, I thought this was a right call. But I think the match, what they offered, like Tamina was a force in this, which she hasn't been on TV really at all. And then all of a sudden, the last three weeks, she's like killing everyone. So I think uh, they may have had Dana Brooke at that spot, which is crazy to believe too. But I don't know where they're going with the SmackDown division. It was like after the Lashley match when he gave Lana that look. It's like Bailey and Sasha kind of looking at each other. We're like, okay, down the line, we know it's going to go down. I thought Lacey was going to get this one, but I also thought this would be the match out of all of the fucking matches on the two nights. This would be the one that got shafted. I'm very happy that it didn't. They gave it the time. Everything was just awesome uh, other than Tamina. But yeah, good match. Well, up next we had was the Psychological Warfare, Firefly Funhouse. To me, this is probably the best segment of the night. Um, this and the Boneyard match is completely different, but they knocked it out the park. This showed how great of an actor Bray Wyatt and John Cena really are. Um, just I'll let you guys talk about it more, but The Fiend basically buried John Cena here. Or did John Cena defeat John Cena himself? So what were your guys' thoughts on this one? And what is next for The Fiend after this convincing win? Yeah, this was out there. Uh, it started off with Cena making his entrance, and all of a sudden he finds himself at the front door of the Firefly Funhouse. This was like 13 minutes of promos, vignettes, uh, trip down memory lane for Cena. We saw the SmackDown fist, and he comes out like on his debut, and then he's trying to hit Bray Wyatt. He moves out the way, and then all of a sudden, he comes out in the NWO. So this is like an alternate universe for Bray. All of a sudden, after that, he tries to attack him. It ends up being the pig, the puppet. <laughs> he's punching. Then the Fiend shows up and takes him out. So if they're going by what happened with The Miz and Daniel Bryan, and Seth Rollins, maybe they're trying to hint at something that everyone changes after they face The Fiend, and maybe John Cena comes back finally as a heel, which we've never seen. John Cena defeated John Cena. He should have knew what he was getting into the second he stepped foot into the Firefly Funhouse. Other than that, this was the most trippy experience I've had watching wrestling. <laughs> 
Yeah, I, I really love this segment. The fact that he just came out and he's like ruthless aggression, and he just kept missing. And Bray's just talking trash to him and saying, "You're not a, you're not a hero. You're you're a bully." And he kept, I, my favorite part in the segment was when he basically mocked Kurt Angle. So it's like Bray Wyatt is like the superior here. It's like I'm the bigger guy right now. I'm the superstar. Cena, you're the guy trying to come back and be you know relevant again. But I'm the guy here running SmackDown. So to me, this just showed how much. Vince and Triple H are invested in The Fiend, and I think moving forward, it's safe to say that I want to see Bray Wyatt face Braun Strowman. I know a lot of people are saying they'd rather see The Fiend maybe face Roman Reigns, but this would come full circle. This would make sense. We even saw the buzzard Bray Wyatt at one point here, which was another great throwback. And just bringing up that whole WrestleMania 30 match, remember when he had the steel chair? And he's like, do it, John. Fix it. Do it. And he was going to do it, and then he disappeared. It was just an awesome match. And John Cena actually got squashed here, so that was uh, that was pretty cool. We've never really seen that, well, other than last year. But I thought this was awesome. But then, of course, it ended on kind of – it was great for Pinello, great for everybody involved, but it was four minutes. Again, we talk about Goldberg, Brock Lesnar, their matches – we're not going to expect, you know, a 10-minute, 12-minute, even 15-minute classic. But I thought here Drew McIntyre, Brock Lesnar, they're both around the same build. I thought we probably would have seen at least a 10-minute brawl. But instead, again, they went with the same old finisher fest. And, of course, at least Drew McIntyre got the WWE title. What were your guys' initial thoughts here? Are you? I know we're all happy for Drew, but were you guys kind of disappointed in the match? A little bit, just because it was a main event, but I think this match, the way it was mapped out with the finishers and the way Brock was reacting when Drew kicked out, it would have been perfect only if fans were in the attendance. It would have maybe had the reaction where, okay, the pop is louder after we kick out, but with no fans, I think it kind of fell a little bit flat of what they wanted to accomplish, but I think the way Drew won... uh, took out Lesnar and the way Lesnar was selling it by just staying there for like five minutes, just flat, like not even moving. I think it put Drew over even more than if they were to have like a 15, 20 minute match like he had with Seth Rollins at SummerSlam. Yeah, that was pretty spot on. Uh, All the matches and all the moves in this match is pretty much fuel the crowd. That's basically what they were working off of, but I'm not exactly surprised by it. You just see in the past when he works with all these big guys, it's usually a brawl for a few minutes, couple suplexes, then it's over. As opposed to when he takes on AJ Finn or Brian, and it's actually, it's actually a match. But yeah, Drew getting the four Claymore kicks in over the three F5s to topple the champ. And uh, he finally did it after all these years. The prophecy is fulfilled. So yeah, good stuff. He deserves it too. Good on Drew. <laughs> Gets a title. Good guy. Tries hard. Loves the game. Loves the sport. <laughs> But then, the big show. Uh, <laughs> the real main event. The, the, <laughs> the, the big show, big show. Or the, the show, I don't know what it's called. <laughs> the big show show. He's, I guess he came back to promote that. He comes out, turns heel for the a millionth time in his career. Takes on Drew McIntyre. And Drew McIntyre basically crying because he's been celebrating. Oh, you know, this is my moment. He still, you know, he gets the win. Um were you guys skeptical that Big Show potentially was going to become the WWE champion in 2020? 
I was actually thinking, like, when they showed this on Raw, I actually thought, oh, my God, Big Show's winning. He had the chokeslam reversed out of the Claymore. Drew jumped off the top, and it looked like it was over. And I would not have been surprised. The way this year has gone and everything and just the way the show was going, Big Show winning wouldn't surprise me. And I think it, it, the match was actually good for a main event of WrestleMania, the, what it was. That was a good main event of WrestleMania. Just Big Show was 20, minute, 20 years, not 20 minutes, sorry, 20 years removed from his last main event. So good on Big Show. He earned that uh, main event clearly and uh, he put in a good show. So that was fun. Oh, I, I can't take it that far. I did not see him winning. When he came out, I was just I was so confused. I'm like, what, what are they doing? Why couldn't they just end it like that? But you know what? Every time I see Big Show, just keeps he looks better and better. Just keeps slimming out. He's got that full beard. It just seems so much more intense, no one in the crowd here and all that trash talk. So, yeah, it was a fun 10 minutes, but uh, don't fucking scare me like that. <laughs> Well, WrestleMania was unreal. We got to go back to the court. Um, last week we talked about the top 10 point guards. As the list goes on, it's going to be harder to do because it's positionless basketball nowadays. People are playing all <laughs> different types of positions. We're definitely going to have a lot of different lists. But again, as always, I'm going to kick it off with Pinello's list. Talk about the honorable mentions. Let's get it going. Is there, I got a couple written down here. I'll kick it off with from the Cavs, Colin Sexton. First year as a shooting guard, actually. He's originally a point guard. Basically, since LeBron left, it's pretty much his team. I don't expect anyone to know that because it's the Cavs. All right, next. I got Dylan Brooks here from uh, Memphis and one of the better 3 and D players in the league, our boy, Danny Green. Those are my honorable yeah. mentions, boys. Yeah, my honorable mentions, like you said, Dylan Brooks, love his game. I got Norm Powell, Storm and Norm over there in my honorable mention whenever he plays. Uh, another guy I have in my honorable mention, I, I don't have him in top 10, but I see him maybe like hovering over there, Jalen Brown. Uh, the minutes he has right now in Boston, there's a lot of good players above him and then positionless basketball, like you were saying, so everyone's going in and out of shooting guard small forward and that power forward, especially with Hayward and Tatum. So whenever Brown plays, I think he shows flashes of a guy who can really be a difference maker for Boston going in the future. So those are my honorable mentions. Yeah. Uh, you guys had great honorable mentions. Uh, my honorable mentions starting off with Colin Sexton as well. Um, this guy, he's a pure scorer. Uh, he's not right now. His, his assists and his rebounds are not really there yet. But um, I think he'll only get better. I know uh, he was listed as a point guard, but Garland came in, and now he's the starting point guard. So now you have a great backcourt in Sexton and Garland. So uh, he's an honorable mention. Another guy, Pinello, me and Alina were talking before. For me, he's very underrated. Is Evan Fournier on Orlando. He was averaging around 18 this year. But I don't think he missed a game this year. He's usually injury prone, but his three-point ability is absolutely outstanding. And, of course... The other honorable mention where he's kind of a shooting guard and he kind of isn't is Terry Rozier. Um, he was listed as a shooting guard when I saw um, they had Graham as the point guard. So for me, I have Terry Rozier there. And of course, you got to always give love to Danny Green. His defense is amazing and his three-point ability. He's one of the pioneers. So there it is. Alrighty, kicking this little thing off at number 10. 
from the Kings, just like last week, Buddy Heald. Uh, he's really come into his own the last couple of years. Uh, he's averaged 20 or just south of 20 over the last two years. Uh, one of the better perimeter shooters in the league when he's on, and he won the three-point contest this year. So maybe that'll put him on the map a little bit more. So uh, I'll give him some love at number 10 there. Yeah, my number 10, former slam dunk champ, Zach Levine, Chicago Bulls. A lot of people say, okay, yeah, he's one of the premier, maybe top three, four shooting guards in the league. I don't see that. Uh, Then when they say, oh, yeah, he should be going up to management and saying he wants to play with this guy, this guy, I don't think he's earned that yet. Uh, I think right now he's coming into the zone in Chicago. The numbers he's putting up, he's playing for a bad team. I think he's talented. Maybe eventually he'll grow into more of a complete player, difference maker. But right now I have him at number 10 with more room to grow. I don't have him at number two or three yet. That's a hot take. Yeah. We're going to throw down. (laughs) Yeah, my number 10, again, I don't know if he's a point guard or shooting guard. He's considered sixth man of the year for me. Marcus Smart, number 10. Um, This guy, wow. His defensive ability, he's easily probably the best when you look at guards, like you think of Clay Thompson, you think of, um, you know, you think of Marcus Smart, Danny Green. Those are the guys that are going to give you that elite defensive game. Marcus Smart, to me, will continue to be the X factor of Boston. I don't care what anyone else says about Brown or Hayward or Thice or Cantor. I think Marcus Smart is the guy that drives Boston. And to me, he's number 10 on the list. Uh, number nine, I have Shai Gilgis Alexander, who, again, first year as a shooting guard. Uh, he's got a lot of young pros around him, and or not young pros, got pros in Gallinari and Paul and, uh, and Adam. So he can basically just go in, get his 18 a game, and it's going to look nice, good to go. Uh, yeah, so if the Clippers somehow don't win in the next three years, this is going to be a guy they're going to look <laughs> look at going forward and saying, what the fuck did we do? But um I'll give him some love. It's probably too soon, but he's been solid this year. He's got my nine spot. Yeah, my number nine. Uh, kind of swapped with your head at 10. I'm going to go Buddy Heald. Uh, just everything like Sa- Sacramento, when they got him in that trade for Boogie, I think he was a perfect fit for them. I still think the way he plays, he might need some more help in Sacramento. They're like a bubble team, I think. They're not in the playoffs where they should be, but with De'Aaron Fox and him, I think they got a great duo. So Buddy Heald is uh, one of those guys that if he is in the right circumstances, right team around him, he could be a top five shooting guard. Yeah, uh, my number nine is Sweet Lou. Lou Will, um, Clippers, time and time again, year after year, a lot of people say, oh, is this guy going to retire? Oh, is he done? Oh, is he going to get another contract? And he just keeps on trucking it. You know, he's averaging about 20 points per game again for, I think, the third consecutive year. It's basically come down when you talk about trophies. There's Selkie, which is the Bergeron Award. There's the Rocket, which is the OV Award. And then you talk about the Six Men. That's the Lou Will Award. So for me, Lou Will, this guy continues to just... He, like a lot of... Got like a lot of NBA players, they say he's one of the toughest guys to guard as well on a consistent basis. Um, he comes in off the bench. He's red hot most of the time. Um, he was one of those favorites in Toronto. Um, Lou Will, to me, he won't get higher on the list. I think he's right here at number nine. And again, Pinello, like you mentioned, Gilgis Alexander, I had him as an honorable mention. But man, in a year's time, 
he could climb up to maybe even number seven on the list. He's got all that talent. So for now, I got Lou Will and Marcus Smart, 9-10. Those are the two guys for me that are in the six-man race. Number eight, he is getting higher. Lou Williams, consistent <laughs> clutch performer. You took all my fucking notes. Uh, it <laughs> doesn't matter who's in front of him, really. He's been on a few teams. He just continues to go out there and uh, just be that offensive dog that we've known to love over the years. He's still averaging around 20 a game or just under. I got here, 33 years old, like you said. I don't see him slowing down, so got to give him some love here. Lou Will at eight. Yeah, I thought I had Lou Williams at eight, uh, like that being a hot take. But yeah, that's not high because I have him at eight. Same reason. Like when he comes off the bench, opposing team is like, shit, how are we going to stop this? Because you know what he's going to do. He's not going to start. He's going to come off the bench, just drink buckets one after another. And then uh, once he goes to the bench, there comes Paul George and Kawhi again. So he just that perfect dynamic for the Clippers and uh, very underrated at times for what he can do to a game like i know a lot of people when he comes off the bench they know okay he's gonna go back in a few minutes maybe if you can guard his threes he could get cold but he knows how to move without the ball which is very important for some of these guys that get comfortable with their three-point shooting so blue will number eight for me yeah number eight for me is jalen brown i have another celtic here um he had a great year Uh, a lot of people talk about breakout years you know they talk about ingram you talk about Graham, you talk about uh, Siakam as well. Um, Jalen Brown, same trajectory. He keeps getting better every year. A lot of people, you know, they have him as a small forward. You look at his build, he's pretty jacked. I think he's around six foot six. Um, but man, what he does, his athleticism is through the roof. His three point shot has gotten better every single year. His mid range is amazing. The only question in his game right now is his defensive consistency. I think if that guy starts being more defensive on a, on a consistent basis, they got another superstar there in Boston. So for me right now, he's number eight. He could easily climb the ranks in a couple of years. Going to number seven, I got Drew Holiday. Uh, I think he's really flourished in his role since Lonzo came over, and he's not really the primary ball handler anymore. Uh, he's, he's, everyone says he's underrated, but he's been one of the better players the last 10 years for me. Uh, I think he's very important to that team. He's also one of the guys, like people say, they can put him over the hump. They can put this team over. Why wouldn't he stay there with Zion and Ingram and Lonzo? To me, he's he's a vital part to that team. He's only 29 years old. He's in his prime right now. I got him at number seven. Yeah, my number seven is CJ McCollum of the Portland Trailblazers. I think Melo signed with the team. I think a lot of people were thought, like thinking in the back of their head, okay, CJ's not getting the ball. They're going to go to Melo, make him happy, get his touches, get his point production up. But it's actually been a pretty good fit offensively for them because everyone knows Lillard. He's just going to go off. MVP candidate, that guy, like 60, 50, he can get 40. Uh, so I think they got a nice mix over there. With uh, Melo and the team, it actually adds to their scoring, gives them a lot more depth, and it allows CJ to get in positions where, okay, they're going to guard mellow because they know that's an offensive threat and it leaves cj able to go around get his points and be a threat with lillard on the back end so they got a nice mix and i like cj's development ever since he's coming to the league so continuing to stay in my top 10 yeah my number seven is the same as a uh, pinello drew holiday um when you talk about 
I wouldn't say underrated is the right word. I would say overlooked. Um, you know, you talk about Ingram now. He's averaged like 25 this year. Zion, as soon as he came in, 22 points per game as a rookie. He's a freak. Um, you know, even guys like Lonzo, his shooting's gotten better. So uh, Drew's gotten less touches, but he's still averaging around 19 a game. Uh, we saw a couple years ago, Davis and Holiday were the only two on that team that just, they flourished. Um, when you talk... To me, Drew Holiday is the Kyle Lowry of New Orleans. He's the heart and soul there. Um, he'll do whatever it takes to win. Again, like Pinello said, he's only 29, so I think he has at least another five great years ahead of him. I don't know if he'll jump on this list, but number seven is a very good uh, place to be right now, so that's where I have him, number seven. Uh, going to number six, I got C.J. McCollum, who, in my opinion, has been one of the more underrated stars the last five, six years, he's averaged 20-plus points since the 15-16 season. Him and Lillard are a filthy backcourt, but no one really talks about him a whole lot because of Dame and then Melo coming in. So to Alino's point, everyone thought there'd be kind of a dip this year, but it's really uh, it's meshed really well this year with those three. So uh, he's, he's also been on that team for seven years now, low-key. He's becoming a, a mainstay there in Portland uh, and a fan favorite. So I got him at number six. Yeah, my number six is Evan Fournier, Orlando Magic. Uh, I never thought I'd even have him this high in a top ten, but <laughs> with everybody injured, like Clay and uh, like all these other guys, Evan Fournier seems to be popping up a little bit because of his percentages from three. Uh, what he offers to the Orlando Magic, like their team is not going to be contending anytime soon. But for what they have, they got a good core of guys that they can build around. I thought Terrence Ross should have been that guy for them. Just his athletic ability should be averaging in the 20s, but uh, Evan Fournier is the one who actually stepped up and picked up the slack. So Fournier's been pretty good for Orlando. Maybe he'll use this to his advantage, maybe go to a contender eventually when his contract's up or if they want to trade him. So I think he's making a good case for himself that he can add to a championship team. Pinello, I'm going to make a prediction right now. We have the same list from six or from seven on. My number Uh, six is C.J. McCollum. Um, like, like Pinello said, and like Alino said, um, a lot of people said, thought this guy would be overlooked this year. And again, continues to put over 20 points a game, his three point ability. No one really talks about it. He is a great secondary option behind Lillard. We all know, well, McCollum's percentage is higher than Lillard's, but that's because McCollum shoots a little less from three, but man, like what, even Lillard's mid range game, I think he's one of the better mid-range shooting guards in the NBA if not the best so his dribbling is fantastic you could even put him in at the one at times if you know if their backup point guard isn't really going um who is it is it Gary Trent I'm I'm not really sure who it is um but CJ McCollum time time and time again seven years with Portland uh five years in a row where he's averaged over 20 he is one of those, yeah, he's one of the most undervalued stars in the NBA, and I wouldn't be surprised if he pops off maybe next year, maybe averages 25 eventually. I don't know if that could happen, you know, with Lillard dropping like 28 a game, but uh, yeah, this is probably one of the best backcourts in the NBA, so McCollum at number six. Kicking off the top five from the Utah Jazz, Donovan Mitchell. Uh very consistent number since coming into the league. He's averaged 20 his first year. It hasn't looked back ever since. Uh, as long as they have him, I honestly think the Jazz are contenders every year. Uh, not contenders. 
but like second round, you know what I'm saying? It's like if they get another piece in between him and Gobert, they're set. But he he makes for me, he's the reason why I watch the Jazz. He's so exciting. One of the better first steps in the league. He can throw it down on pretty much anyone. Uh, just an awesome player all around. I got him at five. Yeah, I had uh, Donovan Mitchell last week in the point guards because I still thought he was a point guard. That shows how much I watch Utah basketball. But that is shooting guard. I'm going to have him uh, definitely number five. Everything you said, like, he's so good off the ball and in positions where you need to get a spark out of your teammates. Uh, the first year he was in the league, the first round, like, when they played against Oklahoma City and the way he was playing against Russell Westbrook, that's like that's what you want. And if you're a guy like who drafted, uh, if you're the GM who drafted this guy, like first round, that's what you want. Impact player. I think he's just going to improve even more. So I think with uh, Gobert and uh, Conley, Conley's been a little bit disappointing this year. Haven't like seen his name pop up the way you want, but I think eventually they're going to figure it out. And Donovan Mitchell is going to be a contender, maybe for the MVP race. Yeah, uh, clean sweep at five. Mitchell is number five for me as well. Like you guys all said, to me, he's kind of like a Russell Westbrook at the two guard. Um, like you said, you need the spark. You need that slam jam. Donovan Mitchell will do that for you. Um, Rudy Gobert on a nightly basis. I don't think he's the – he averages like 14 and 17. He's a double-double machine, but he won't be that offensive threat. That's exactly where Donovan Mitchell comes in right away. He averaged 21, I think, in his rookie year. And then last year, I think he averaged 24. And this year, he was averaging, I think, the same. So he's an offensive machine. Um, the only question I have is, can his three-point um, shot be a little more consistent? We all know his mid-range and his paint. In, in the paint, he's a beast, especially as a two-guard. But, uh, yeah, Donovan Mitchell, that guy, is he's, he's the real deal. And he was probably the biggest steal in the 2017 draft. So he's number five for now. Number four, Zach Levine. Pretty much the opposite of what Alino said. But uh, yeah, <clears throat> with Minnesota, I kind of viewed him as this incredible athlete. I didn't know if he would hit his potential offensively, but since he joined the Bulls, really, he's kind of just taken off as their go-to guy. Um, he, he is literally the only reason why I tune into the Bulls games. He's so exciting. He's one of those guys you go pay to see. So for this year specifically, he is my fourth best shooting guard. This is going to be a, a controversial pick. I got Andrew Wiggins at this Holy spot. Holy shit, man. <laughs> <laughs> Just what I, him and Golden State uh, with Steph Curry. Uh, I think this is going to work. When Clay Thompson comes back, which could be if they have a playoffs, this could be a big three. So uh, next year, when you guys start uh, making your list for who can be a dominant player, Andrew Wiggins could be, if he doesn't get traded, he could be in that mix. So right now, the way he played in Minnesota and it carried over into Golden State after the deadline, I have him at this spot. It's controversial, but I got Wiggins. I mean, when you talk about value and you talk about expectations, yeah, he it makes sense that he's at four here. Um, but, yeah, Zach Levine. So me and Pinello probably have the same list. So Zach Levine at four, um, like Pinello said, you look at him in Minnesota, he had a lot of, you know, red flags. You know, he wasn't a great mid-range scorer at the time. It was all about dunking. His three-point shot was not polished, but bam, he gets traded for Jimmy Butler 
and all of a sudden this guy is motivated. He goes to Chicago, and man, this guy is an offensive weapon. This guy, we saw last year, he dropped 12 or 13 threes against Charlotte. This guy is a splash machine. When this guy's hot, this guy could drop 40 almost. He could make 40 look like the new 30. I think Zach Levine is one of the better offensive two guards. Arguably, when we come to the near the end of the 2020s, this guy might be one of the better offensive two guards in this decade. So right now, um, I'm showing him a lot of love here at number four, but he could easily pass Devin Booker, I think, down the line. So that those two guys, I think, are going to be intertwined for a long time. So Pinello, he's probably your number three, but keep it going. There it is with the bronze medal, Devin Booker. Uh, he gives fans false hope every year, putting up 40 to 50 points and that team finishing in the 10 to 13 seed. I feel so bad for their fans, but yeah, like similar to Mitchell since entering the league, he's, he's like, he's scoring 20 points and he's, he's the go-to option on that team right away. Um, he's one of those guys. There's so many talented guys in the league, but I just, there's something about him. I feel like he can lead the league with points per game. He's just so good. Um, yeah, he's only still in his mid-20s. He hasn't even touched his top potential yet, so I'm, I'm really excited to see what this guy does going forward. Yeah, my number three is Bradley Beal from Washington. Uh, I like the way he's played. Uh, he is putting up really good numbers, but it's without like John Wall in the starting five. So we've seen them play together where his production isn't as high as it is now. If Bradley Beal were to get traded to another team, you'd see that production go down a bit. I think the way, reason he's doing that much is because he is that only option they have. So uh, he's still a really good shooting guard. He has proven he can go to the conference final with Washington, but uh, I don't have him in that number one or two spot. Yeah, my number three is also Devin Booker. I think Bradley Beal is a little bit better than Devin Booker just based off of the year he's had. The fact that he wasn't a, he wasn't an all star is just disgusting. That is an insult. But yeah, we'll talk. I'll talk about him in a moment. But Devin Booker, this guy offensively, like I just said about Zach, him and Zach Levine are going to average like twenty five consistently the next like seven years. Don't be surprised with that. A lot of people are saying, oh, when Aiton starts going, you know, Booker's numbers are going to go down. I don't think so at all. Uh, De- DeAndre Aiton is more of you know a post game player where Devin Booker, he's going to take at least seven threes a game. Um, a lot of people say, oh, you know, he's shooting a lot because he, there's really no one else in Phoenix. Um, but, man, like this guy, he had a 70-point game in his career at like 22 years old. Just the sky's the limit for me with Devin Booker. He was a steal in the 15 draft. Everybody knows that, though, already. Devin Booker, number three, he could easily be almost in that number one spot, I think, in a couple of years. Um, <clears throat> all right, the runner-up here, Bradley Beal, averaging 30 points per game. He's having the best year of his life. Uh, obviously, John Wall is not there, so that has something to do with it, but he's just been a consistent scorer ever since entering Washington. And given the where the team's been the last few years, for him to say that he wants to retire at Washington, an elite player like that, that's really awesome for their franchise. So hopefully Wall can get back, and then those two can get back to uh, doing what they do best. Yeah, my number two is uh, everyone's uh, favorite Phoenix son. Devin. Uh, I think he's an unreal talent. We, as he's shown early on in his career, that 70-point game you brought up, everything you want from your shooting guard. Threes, he's an offensive threat. He can make his teammates a little bit better. 
But uh, I the reason why I have him over Bradley Beal is if both of them are available for a trade and I need one of them, I'm go- doing everything I can to bring in Devin Booker to a team that's contending for a, like a championship, maybe like the Lakers. If they can go after Beal or Booker, I would choose Booker just because of that. Like everything he can do to help the team win, uh, the consistency in his three-point shooting. He's scary offensively for all the defensive end guys on the other team. So I got Devin Booker at number two. Yeah, I think the difference between Booker and Beal and the argument you can make is that a lot of people see Booker more as that one option, like that number one primary option. And some people are arguing that Beal still maybe isn't that number one option. But yet I still think based off what he's what we've seen this year, he could easily be a number one option. You know, 30 points a game, that's no cakewalk for anybody. And the fact that he's doing that in Washington, not even a playoff team, that's just insane. I mean, I really hope that Bradley Beal um, has some playoff success down the line. He's, I think, 27 now, 28, um, arguably entering his prime right now. Like Pinello said, this is a season of his life. When you average 30 points a game, there, you really can't get any better than that. So I don't see him being the best shooting guard in the NBA. But, man, this guy, what he's done this year, it's historic. I mean, I haven't seen anyone do it since Gilbert Arenas, you know, what he's been doing in Washington. So um, we all know how great Gilbert Arenas was for the time being. But Bradley Beal, he's a great consolation prize for me. But I, I understand how, uh, why you have Devin Booker ahead of him, just so you see him more as that primary option. But we all have... James Harden at number one. There's, yeah. there's really no competition there. Pinello, talk a little bit about the bearded freak. Yeah, pretty much since he left OKC and was given the green light in Houston, he's been the best offensive player in the league. Uh, his step back is deadly. No one can really guard it. I don't know how he makes half the plays he does. The guy's a cheat code. He's averaging 30 points. Uh, oh, my God, no. I'm looking at Beal. He's averaging 35 this year. He was doing the same thing last year. Uh, I don't know any other player that's had more second-place votes in the league for MVP. The the guy's been (laughs) shafted so many times. Just gifts you can't teach. He's such a treat to watch. So uh, easy choice for number one. Yeah, just building off that on Harden. Like, phenomenal with that ability that he has. And D'Antoni's system, it fits him perfectly. That step back. Even the way he's able to travel and not get the calls from the ref calling that, like he has a referee's respect that, okay, this guy, he's an offensive player like that. I'm going to let that travel slide. Uh, All the threes he puts up, all the numbers he puts up consistently, even now with Westbrook over there, everyone probably thought, okay, there's not enough ball to go around. They're going to need two basketballs to play with them. They made it work again, and uh, he's still averaging 35. So he's a freak, and just too bad Houston doesn't have a legitimate center because it's going to cause problems. Yeah, um, James Harden, I think the last four years he's averaged like 34. <laughs> just like, that's just, I'll say it, that that's retarded. Like, no one is going to do that. I mean, Steph Curry, he won the MVP in 2015, unanimously averaging, I think, 30, and then he had the 50-40-90 season. Like Pinello said, this guy's finished runner-up for MVPs, I think, the last four years in a row. If it's not him, it's, you know, Paul George got his name in there, LeBron James, you know, you have those guys usually there. But what James Harden does offensively, I don't know if we're ever going to see it again um, from a consistent standpoint. I mean, this guy came to Houston in 2012, right away averaged, I think, 27 
after averaging like 19 in OKC. And then, of course, you know, you think, okay, is that a breakout year? And this guy just keeps getting better and his numbers keep going up. And like Pinel said, he's a cheat code. I don't know how he does it. Um, you know, 36 a game last year. We said in our pod, he was averaging more points per game than minutes, which is <laughs> retarded. <laughs> That's something that doesn't happen. So, again, the fact that he's over 33 points a game for the second straight year, that is just – that's godly. That's just something that we will never see again. Um, and it's a shame that there's guys like Giannis and LeBron playing as well um, on both sides of the court because if that wasn't the case, he's your MVP every year. <laughs> is yeah, anyone going to pass him? Yeah. <laughs> KD, you think he's at when he – going to be like him as a shooting guard you think Brooklyn will do that no I think uh I think their shooting guards Karis Levert I think he's the guy there I think he will average like 20 next year and I don't think people are going to be surprised because this guy he's a star but my my computer is at three percent so oh it's probably best that we call this (laughs) yeah (laughs) that was fun though that was a fun list that was good. We'll have the same one next week, probably. Yeah, probably. We will. <laughs> and, uh, yes, yeah, so also for this episode, uh, going to include Drew McIntyre and Bron- Braun Strowman. Sorry, not Brock Lesnar. Jesus, imagine. Uh, Braun Strowman interview <laughs> from SummerSlam media event. And, uh, yeah, they're both world champs, so we'll include that in there. That was all for this week's episode, guys. This is episode 75. obsessed with wrestling since I was a kid. Obviously, it took it so far that now I do it professionally, and it's the only job I've ever had. I'm glad to see the rest of the world is finally caught up. That is the coolest thing in the world. And it's awesome that it's getting so much exposure. Like you say, moving to Fox is going to be a huge thing for us in more homes. And just the amount of TV deals across the world in different countries. In some countries that I never thought would ever, the WWE would never reach. But the global footprint is so big and it's so cool that everybody is such a big fan and it's huge in Germany. So I've spent some time in Germany with WXW. It's like a, a big place when it comes to wrestling. Drew, you know, the Raw reunion. You were uh, outspoken about the legends that showed up. Just uh, at, when you're going behind the scenes, so when the legends come back, what does it mean for the rest of the roster? It's pretty cool for everybody. I mean, for the ones that have only been there for maybe five, six, seven years or whatever, it's probably the first time meeting a lot of them. But for myself, uh, even though I'm the same age as a lot of the guys and girls, I obviously started younger. I was 21, 22 when I first came to America and was on the roster. So I was with a lot of these people. So it was like a family reunion for me. There was one point I saw all the Divas together. 
<coughs> from 2007. And we were all catching up, and I walked up, and I remember them all being together in 2007, and I asked them what year it was. It was so crazy to see them all together again, and just to catch up with everybody, that I was like 22, 23, last time I was around some of them, and now I'm 34. Now 40, like everyone seems to think, I've been around for so long. <laughs> and like, you know, NXT, you had, when you came back, you went through NXT again, and uh, just showed everyone just how great you are in the ring. Now, that experience you had when you were 23, 24 years old, and now 34 years old, what do you think uh, you've learned throughout that time uh, I mean, I've learned so much. <clears throat> um, like when I was that age, I was comfortable in the ring, but I guess there was a lot of other things I still had to learn. And I just had to kind of grow up out the ring also, because I was a little bit crazy when I was younger. So the time uh, away from WWE was allowed me to put everything into practice that I'd learned. I'd really put up or shut up, give it 100% in the ring and out the ring, in the gym, um, during media, etc. Just every area of my game I really worked hard on and uh, became the top guy in various companies outside of WWE. I proved I could be a top guy, proved I could be a franchise player. And that's why, uh, you know, I've got these opportunities since coming back to be NXT champion and lead NXT and coming back to Raw in a more prominent position, which is pretty cool because I'm just getting started and plan to keep moving up. Now, not so bad. Uh, when I did it, when Seamus did it, when Wade Barrett did it, <clears throat> it was uh, literally like being picked up and dropped in America. Like there was no transition period. It was just such a culture shock uh, to move from the UK straight to America and just quickly try and get acclimated to the American way and the American wrestling style. Now, with uh, you know NXT and NXT UK and uh, various other uh, you know, uh, companies across the world, it's a more seamless process and get people ready now like if you're in the UK for example you'll train at the UK Performance Center then you go to NXT and if you're from any other country you go to NXT you'll develop a character there that character will generally move to Raw or Smackdown when I was in FCW in Florida Championship Wrestling you were one character and then they didn't watch the show then they changed your character then they put you on TV then you had to be this new character in front of the world NXT, the world knows your character from the TV show, and then it's a more seamless process, and everyone's more comfortable. But back in our day, I was supposed to be a model at one point. That was going to be my gimmick moving from FCW. They told me I was going to be the runway man and a model, and I lost all this weight and got all lean. And then they told me, no, no, you're just going to be an ass kicker. Just gain the weight back. I was like, what? And then that's pretty much like what happened with me, because there was no real rhyme or reason to anything, but now there is, and it makes it easier for the guys and girls to deliver. How much do you think is important to uh, born in NXT UK for uh, European wrestling, younger wrestlers? I think it's great. Like I say, back in, I hate saying back in my day, because I get in but back in my day, there was only two wrestling schools in the whole of the UK. And I'm from Scotland, so I used to have to travel 12 hours just to learn to wrestle, <laughs> because there was only those two wrestling schools. And now there's a bunch of different wrestling schools, you know, to get some experience and good wrestling schools. But then when the time is right, if you're good enough and you work hard enough, you get that opportunity to work with NXT UK. Then you learn how it works here on the big stage with the cameras, etc. But you still get to be close to home. 
So you start working in that next stage, and then when the time is right, then you move to the air. You'll be ready. I like, like my generation, like I mean, sink or swim my generation, and I sunk a few times and had to learn how to swim. <laughs> at it is it's 52 weeks a year of TV so um, and I'm not looking to just jump into the deep end it's cool that a lot of fans I appreciate all of the fans that have followed my career saying oh, Drew should be doing this Drew should be doing this if I have the universal title whatever as I appreciate all that but the way I look at it is there's a big part of the audience that don't know what I'm about yet so I like the idea of slowly introducing the characters, slowly introducing layers, giving them a little taste of what I can do in the ring, and building that equity with the non-wrestling fans. And the ones who know, know I've been around for a while, and you know this is all I do, and I'm very comfortable in there. But the ones who don't know, I enjoy that long-term build. And when I finally fight for the title, um, it's going to be, you know, it's going to mean something, and everyone's going to know what I'm about. And being around guys like Shane, also, I'm learning all the time because again, this is all he's ever done his entire life so I get the opportunity to sit under the learning tree while he's also the most paid guy so it's pretty cool to be out there and have to make sure nobody kills him <laughs> thank you what's going on so Ron uh, another summer slam now under your belt what's it like uh, performing on these big events in the WWE oh they're great I mean uh the big four, I mean, that's what everybody looks forward to, especially SummerSlam. It's uh, it's the biggest party of the summer. I mean, we're here in Toronto for four shows. We're starting with the NXT TakeOver Saturday, SummerSlam on Sunday, Raw on Monday, and SmackDown on Tuesday. And not even that, like last night, WWE invaded uh, the Rogers Center. Uh, uh, I threw out the ceremonial first pitching for the Blue Jays versus the Yankees last night, kind of a WWE fan night at uh, the Rogers Center. Had a really good turnout. So, man, Toronto is on fire. Just The fans are just excited for us be here and we're excited to be here and perform for you guys. And you know, you threw out the first pitch like you mentioned. How was that? Because obviously that ball got those hands. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, luckily I threw a strike right down the middle. You know, uh, it's been a while. I used to play ball when I was younger, but I don't get out and throw or hit or do too much. I was trying to con the Jays and let me take some bad practice, but they didn't let me. I think they were worried I was going to show up Guerrero Jr. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, fun experience. I mean, uh, it's a great opportunity to, to get out there and, 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 and get my face in front of people that necessarily don't get to see it. I'm bridging the gap with WWE, MLB. I've got a lot of friends that play in MLB and meeting more every time I get to do these events. So it's really cool doing the things that WWE does. Last year, uh, you were very close to uh, the Universal Championship. Yep. When we can see you with that belt? I'm dying to get back into the race with that thing. I'm really looking forward to seeing what Seth Rollins and Brock Lesnar bring to the table this week. I'm sure it's going to be heavy and hard-hitting like it always is, but uh, whoever comes out victorious on the back end of that, uh, keep an eye out. Uh, the monster's ready, and as soon as they give me the, the green light, uh, it's on like Donkey Kong. <laughs> One, it's, it's, it's tough. Traveling's tough, getting shoved in a tiny airplane eight days a week, I feel like. 
like sometimes, but uh, it's really funny a lot of the times going to the other countries and stuff where people aren't used to seeing large human beings like me and I come walking out of the airport and it's just open mouths and open eyes just staring as I walk through and uh, it's, it's kind of surreal. Um, the feeling because I feel like in America people are kind of numb to it and accustomed or they've seen me before they know who I am and like a lot of these places they don't they have no clue what I am who I am what I do and just to see the sheer size of me it's just it's it's it's, it's pretty funny to watch I, I enjoy that it's one of my favorite things of, about traveling is just walking around in public and watching people's reactions to me yeah one of the things that uh, we saw was when, when you guys went to you guys to Japan and there were pictures of you with some of the newscasters down there. Yeah. It was, it was pretty, pretty damn funny. Yeah, I had Japan, uh, to when we were just over in Japan this last time in Tokyo, it was the first time I got to go to Tokyo. It was really cool. I'd uh, walk it around and like you said, yeah, I got to go out and experience some of the Tokyo nightlife in Rapongi and then uh, went to the world famous Ribera Steakhouse and I ate three Akibono steaks there that <laughs> night. And that's another thing I like to eat and that's uh, always fun when I order a ridiculous amount of food just from seeing the waiter and the, like, the, the, even the chef like stick his head out of the back of the kitchen going like, who is ordering all this food? So, yeah, it's always, the, the shock and all the value is always there with me. <laughs> I come from Italy and uh, in Italy uh, had, uh, had a great success your storyline with Alexa Bliss uh, in the mix of the match challenge. Yeah. Did you like that? Oh uh, yeah, it was it was really cool opportunity for for so long. All, everything has just been monster, monster, monster. All you ever saw was Braun the monster, and it was the first chance that we got to branch out and, and you see more of the character, more of his soft side. Because obviously, you can tell on the show that Braun had a soft spot for Alexa Bliss, and kind of vice versa. And it worked really well. I really enjoy working with Alexa. She's an unbelievably talented young lady, and uh, it just there's just something there. We have a, a natural chemistry when the camera's on that we just click and everything just vibes and we have fun while we're doing it and I enjoy working with you so I always look forward to it. Yeah, thank you.